1: One minute past nine and you are tuned to one oh two point seven three triple R. It's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. My name's Bron Burton.
0: And my name is Doctor Beach. Why
1: are you, Doctor Beach?
0: I'm very well. Very good. And you? Pleased to hear it. I'm very well too, thank you. It's a gorgeous sunny morning out there, so who wouldn't be well? Yeah. Autumn in Melbourne. I dig it.
1: I dig it too. I'm a little disconcerted that it's still so warm and we're only four weeks away from the start of winter, technically.
0: Well, yeah, there's all of
1: that. But we know all about that, don't we? Yeah,
0: we do. We mm. talk
1: about that a lot. Hey, thanks, Action Dan, for a fabulous three hours of Vital Bits. Tim's having a rest today. It well, is. Well is, is it, it's good, it,
0: it, yeah, it sure is. It's good to see Tim having a holiday.
1: Yeah. Tracy doing a lovely job feeling yesterday. Mm-hmm. Tracy Hutchison, good morning to you if you're listening. Today's program... We're going to be joined in studio shortly by Cade Mills from the Victorian National Parks Association. He was in a couple of weeks ago talking up last week's uh, sea slug census. So, a bit of a roundup of um, some data of what exists out in Port Phillip and Western Port for, uh, in, in the world of nudie brinks.
0: <laughs> sea slugs. <laughs> sea slug census.
1: And uh, we actually crossed to um, oh, where was it? somewhere, Coffs Harbour I think it was, but it was where the um, Australian Marine Sciences Centre, I knew I was going to get that wrong too, but the Centre for Marine Science Research in uh, Coffs Harbour, to speak with Steve Smith who was the originator of this uh, sea slug census which happens every, once a year in different parts of the coast in Australia, the first time that we've ever done it down south in Victoria.
0: That's right and I'm really impressed that you got sea slug census right
1: (laughs) I mucked it up last time. (laughs) Well, who
0: wouldn't?
1: (laughs) I almost did then. So anyway, this all happened last weekend and Cade's coming in to tell us what happened.
0: I look forward to it. And and, and, yeah, it's great having Cade as a regular on the show. He's just walked into the green room looking like he's walked off the beach. He's (laughs) barefoot, he's in board shorts. He looks like the real authentic deal. He's
1: looking more the real deal than we are.
0: sure as hell it is. (laughs)
1: <laughs> We're going to then cross to Blegowry to speak with P.T. Hirschfield, who is going to give us a, uh, a report on the spider crabs, which are. Oh, look, they came in en masse a couple of weeks ago. There's been a bit of mainstream media about it. And then um, according to the social uh, website groups that I've been looking at, I really don't have many words in my head this morning. The socials. Yeah, the socials. Um, they have kind of all disappeared. People went diving during the week and I only saw one or two of them in the spot where there had been thousands of them the week before. So this is their nature. This is what they do. They've racked off. Yeah. So PT is going to give us an update on... Well, I guess we're going to hit her up for a dive report too because she's about to actually get in the water and uh, and find out where the spideys are going. Then we're going to be joined in studio by Andrew Hazelwinkle who is an artist and is about to open an exhibition in Mornington uh, called What the Sea Never Told and it's pays homage to a tragedy which happened back in the 1890s with about 15, I think it was 15, footballers who were on their way having played a game in Mordialik back to their hometown of Mornington. And there uh, was a tragedy at sea, Uh, 15 drowned and only four bodies ever recovered. Wow. So Andrew has uh, put together an exhibition commemorating this particular, uh, this incident, this tragedy, and we're going to speak with him all about that.
0: Cool. Hmm. And then I'm going to wrap up the show with, um, I'm not quite sure yet. I'm going to think about that over the next half an hour. But <laughs> one of the things that has piqued my interest this week, we've talked a lot about plastics on this program as well as climate change. These are the two things that worry me most of my life at the moment. Hmm. Um, but there's a, <coughs> pardon me, as well as that little bit of a cough, um, a paper has just appeared in Science um, and there's a little article on it which is entitled Plastics Recycling with a Difference. And this is essentially a plastic that seems like it might have an infinite life cycle, which is easily broken down and then reassembled back into new product. One of the problems we have with the so-called recyclable plastics now, and only in the 40 years since we've had recycling symbols on plastics, only 10% of those get recycled. And they can't get recycled back into the original product very easily without a lot of energy being put into them. Uh, there's a group at um, Colorado State University which has made some headway into discovering or manipulating current polymers, that is plastics, into a form which can be broken down into their monomers, so they're single balls, if you like, and then reassembled back into the long chains, which are what plastics are, with relatively little complication. Mm. It's quite easy and... It's not there yet, of course. We won't be using them in the near future, but at least there's a bunch of chemists in the US who seem to be making some headway into this.
1: There was a lot of excitement a few weeks ago uh, about... Bacteria with a particular type of enzyme production that was breaking down plastics. Did you catch that? I did.
0: Yeah, I did. And this is one of the problems with the the so-called biodegradable plastics that we have now is that you need the right bugs or the right bacteria present to be able to break down those plastics. Mm. And often that doesn't happen. So even though something might be biodegradable, if the right bugs aren't around, then they are going to be in the environment, I mean then those plastics are not going to degrade as quickly as we might that's Like
1: that that's right. And also there's also the issue if we're looking at impacts too, that these sorts of bacteria, from what I understand, are not going to it's not like they suddenly the plastic disappears. It's not like it just vanishes and it's gone. And what yeah, it does is break it down right. into smaller pieces, which actually makes it more consumable by fish and marine mammals and
0: Yeah, and we still really don't know the effects of those small pieces, those microplastics, what they have on organisms, that's including right. us, at the End of the food chain.
1: There's always a risk that a bigger problem is being created. Yeah, well. But, but the, uh, the, the research has to continue because we have a massive problem. And well, as, needs as, to be as, as this
0: paper says, perhaps I'm overprefacing and I'll talk about it later on. Um, we're going to need plastics. I mean, we can't use metals and other products to replace the plastics that we have now that we've got so used to over the last 50, 60, or 70 years. Um, we are going to need them.
1: Well, yeah, or we accept that we don't have them, but that comes with massive consequence.
0: It, it, well, it does, yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: Um, okay.
0: That's one of the things I'm going to talk about and I might talk a little bit about Terry Hughes's paper uh, which appeared in Nature just this week but which was kind of prefaced again in the in the um, mainstream media a couple of weeks ago saying how much we now know that the, the reef has changed mm-hmm. due to climate change.
1: There's a particularly relevant article on the front page of The Age as well.
0: Nice segue, Bron. Um yeah, front page of The Age, $500 million, That is half a billion dollar reef rescue pledge. Apparently Turnbull and his mates are going to announce something in Cairns today, which is um, chucking half a billion dollars at the reef. And, you know, cynical me says this is just to... Um, and indeed, the paper points this out as well. This is kind of to assuage the, the concerns that many people have about them being in support of Adani.
2: Mm.
0: And that $500 million dollars is um, broken down into, well, $201 million of it is going to improve water quality with um, changed farming practices, so chucking a lot of money at research to improve the, um, the amount of runoff that goes into the reef. Uh, there's going to be $56 million boost to the Great Barrier Park Marine, well, Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Association. And yeah, a few other bits and pieces out there. But so it's definitely a good thing. It's a fantastic thing that they are throwing cold, hard cash um, at this problem. But in the background for me, there are these other things that they are still supporting. And top of the list there is Adani. Mm. And Adani, as we all know, is going to be responsible for pumping an enormous amount of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. That leads to increased warming. And as Terry Hughes et al. have mentioned, it's that, it's that climate change which is completely changing more than decimating the reef. It has reduced the number of corals that we have on the reef dramatically. And I remind everybody they use the word decimating to say it's destroyed something. But decimating actually means it's getting rid of 10%. That's what the Romans did. They decimated their armies by getting rid of 10% of the soldiers to freak out the other 90% so that they would work better. Right. So decimating really can't be used in that sense because we're doing much more than decimating it.
1: Well, that's right. It's used as a another word for annihilating, isn't it? But falsely mm-hmm. so.
0: Falsely slow. Slow. <laughs> (laughs) I think we're all having a problem with our diction this morning.
1: (laughs) We can put on some music in a minute. A couple of quick plugs I wanted to mention. One is um, courtesy of Alicia Belgrove from Deakin Uni. Thanks, Alicia, for putting this up. This is uh, one of her students, uh, her graduates, I should say. She's founded a really great initiative to get vessel operators on the Great Barrier Reef, we've just been talking about the reef, to stop using plastic straws and help protect marine life. Actually, this links your two stories perfectly, bringing together um, the the reef and the issue with straws. We're damn smooth like that on this show. <laughs> yeah, it's all designed that way, isn't it, Dr Beach? Yeah. Um So it's called The Last Straw on the Great Barrier Reef and we'll put a link to this on our Facebook page. It's it's really basically a campaign to try and stop the use of plastic straws in the resorts on the Great Barrier Reef. So good on you for doing that.
0: I, I, I just want, I'd like to stick with that for a second. I know is concerned about us moving on with the show. But um, plastic straws, there was an interesting article in the paper this week on, for, so for disabled people, it's very difficult. D- disabled, you know, plastic straws are fantastic for people who need assistance with feeding themselves. That's right. And it's pretty difficult to get a bendy straw which ain't plastic, which you can use if you are disabled. So metal ones and other straw, recyclable ones are not actually that good for them. Ever tried
1: cleaning one?
0: That's right. Ever tried cleaning one? It's really difficult.
1: Not disputing that at all.
0: Yeah. Oh, no, yeah, we've got to get rid of straws, but yeah, we, well, we have to use a lot fewer of them and we, certainly not have them out on boats, for example, people on right. the Barrier Reef, you know, and then chucking them overboard.
3: And not be
1: given out as a matter of... course. I mean, they are getting better, but it used to it was always the case that you'd just be given a handful of everything mm-hmm. at, at a fast food place. Mm. It didn't matter whether you needed it or not or asked for it or not.
0: Yeah. So. We restrict their use dramatically.
1: Yeah. Let's have some music.
0: Well, hang on, I have had some weather. Oh,
1: yeah, let's have some weather. Yeah,
0: I'm looking at the weather. Uh, it's a beautiful day out there. It's nice and sunny. It's going to be 18 degrees today. A tiny chance of rain, less than one millimetre. I don't think that's going to happen. Tomorrow, 19 degrees, cloud clearing. Fry, uh, Tuesday, 23 degrees, so warming up a little bit again, Bronn, unseasonably warm. Mm. Do we call this an Indian summer? I don't think so. No. Let's way don't past that. No. says no. no. all right. Isn't that racist?
1: It's an extended summer.
0: It's an oasis, just talking about a particular... Let's,
1: we're going to close that Wednesday's going to be 21
0: degrees, Thursday's going to be 21, Friday's 19, Saturday back down to 19. For those of you who are heading out on the water at Point Lonsdale, it is going to be high tide at around 11.30am. Swellnet says light winds and moderate swells are producing fun waves in talkers. Water temperature is around 17 degrees.
1: Fun waves in talkers. <laughs> yeah. On that note, this is a track that was completely unrelated. I had to segue somehow. Uh, a, a group called the Mexicans. They're from Broom. and they uh, feature a couple of the Pigram family members. And this track called it's called sometimes features um, backing tracks by Steve Pigram, who we're very fond of here at Radio Marinara. So this is from their uh, 2018 album Chili's, which has just come out. And this track's called Sometimes. <laughs>
4: Hi, this is Wayne Lynch, and you're listening to Radio Marinara
1: on 3RRR. Yes, indeed, you are. It's 19 minutes past nine and coming up to 20, and you are listening to Radio Marinara. This is 3RRR. First, I'm going to very quickly welcome into studio Cade Mills. Good morning, Cade.
4: Hey, Bron, how's it going?
1: Good, thanks. How are you? Oh,
4: fantastic. Looking forward to chatting to P.T.
1: Yeah, me too. So um, we're going to get into the sea slug census shortly. We've got P.T. Hirschfield waiting for us on the line because she's about to get in the water and get wet and go searching for some spider crabs. Good morning, P.T. Good morning, Bron, Cade,
2: Dr. Beach and listeners. How are you doing? Oh, really great, beautiful morning out here at Blair Gowrie. I don't understand why the place is not crawling with both divers and spider crabs, but the reports are from two divers that have just come out. Not many crabs seen at all today, I'm afraid.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I've been following the thread through Facebook and noticed that where there were, you know, what seemed to be thousands only a really short time ago, they've kind of gone off somewhere. What, What do we know about this?
2: So the first time I recorded crabs in what my logbook says, the gazillion this year, was the 7th of March. And pretty much it's been unusual that they have stayed on the march in this area fairly excessively um, for the last couple of weeks if not the last month or so but being on the march they definitely are moving around a lot so you might see them at the start of a dive and then not see them again at the end i actually haven't seen many crabs now since wednesday so it doesn't mean that they are not here it just means that they are on the march doing their thing and someone came out this morning and said no i think i've actually missed the migration or the aggregation or the molting. Uh, what we believe is probably more the case is that we may see a mass molting event around about the 31st of March, which is the full moon. Now, that doesn't come with any guarantees, but it seems to be a... Oh, sorry. 30... No, we're just wondering, no, with, do you mean, do you mean may? Of may? Yes. 31st of May. And, um, yeah, we think that that might trigger with the, the drop in water temperatures going
1: Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, we've lost her. Oh, uh, Kate, we're going to throw to you. You can pick up where, uh, where P.T.'s left off. About the spider crabs? Yes. Well, about your knowledge of... Because um, you go diving a lot as well. What's... Uh, I actually had
4: a question for P.T., which hopefully we'll get her back in time, and it's just about... Obviously, she's talking about them being on the march. My query is where they're marching to and mm. the other areas that they're marching because they're not only seen at Gary, they're found at other locations...
0: So,
1: <laughs> sorry, we got a little bit of in studio questioning going on about where T might, PT might be. That's okay, Doctor What? what, what
0: well, what, what I was wondering was that you can see them from the from the air sometimes, and I'm wondering if any pilots out there want to ring in and say, like, yeah, I saw this big mass. That, um, if they're sometime, in the shallows, if yeah, they're in the shallows, yeah, that's
1: right. Hey, let's jump from um, let's jump from spider crabs to nudibranchs because I can only assume we've just the, the phone just dropped out. I know she had difficulty hearing us at one point. Nudibranchs, Cade, let's let's get you formally welcomed back to Radio Marinara. So for our listeners who've just tuned in, Cade was in a couple of weeks ago promoting last week's last weekend's first ever sea slug census in Port Phillip Bay and Western Port. Quick 30-second snapshot for, um, for those who missed the show two weeks ago about what this is all about.
4: Yeah, so it started in New South Wales with a, a couple of guys having a bit of a competition over who could see the most nudibranchs or sea slugs in a single dive. Um, the competition got a bit out of hand and other people wanted to join in and it's sort of grown and moved along the east coast. It's in the Gold Coast, Jarvis Bay, further south and I saw what they were doing and thought, let's bring this to Melbourne. So we kicked it off last weekend for the first one.
1: And how did it go? How many... Let's let's start with the divers who took part. How many divers did you get up all in, in all end?
4: Well, we were very fortunate that we had exceptional weather conditions, basically. Mm. We had very light winds. Um, the seas had been pretty nice during the time, so most areas were pretty clear. And... Estimating, We had over 150 participants sort of spread out through Port Phillip, Western Port and even out on the open coast. Someone even did a dive on the Canberra for us to check out if there are any nudies out there. I haven't got any results yet, but there was probably about 20, 30 locations that people visited while they were there, um, you know, as far north as sort of at Elwood, uh, Point Ormond there. And then we had like Mushroom Mushroom Reef out near um, Western Port sort of side and Flinders and Blair Blairgowrie were quite popular, but I think those that searched in unique or different locations, other than those, were the ones that were uh, that were rewarded. Uh-huh. We had a, a school teacher who actually participates in the Great Victorian Fish Count with his kids. Went over to Point Lonsdale, and I think he found about a dozen or so species. And I'm pretty sure he was just looking around the rock pools and all that there, and sent some amazing images. And people were. just like random locations i guess that are searching in spots that we hadn't really thought people would go to and that's i guess part of the the
0: benefit of it is it sort of encourages that exploration in different locations Mm. any big surprises so um any any new species for example potentially new species or new records
4: there's, There's always potential for that. We're, the images are still coming in. So if anyone participated and they're listening and they haven't sent their images in, please do that by the end of the day. Um, there was, as I mentioned before, the school teacher that was over at Point Lonsdale, he um, had recorded one that he saw in Bob Byrne's book and said it's only been seen a couple of times before. So he's pretty sure he's got the same species, so that's exciting in itself if it's only been seen a few times. But once we get all the images in, then we'll send them through. We'll get Bob Byrne Vern, Bob Vern involved, who's a Victorian Nudibank guru, and um, Steve Smith as well up in um, Southern Cross Uni, and they'll identify them all when we're going to put together a report with an image for each species that was seen and the locations they were seen at and send that out to all the participants so
0: they've sort of got a bit of a, a manual for when they go out in future. I, I understand that they're about the size of, say, well, half the size of one's little finger, generally, if you're going to generalise. Is that, is that, that's right?
4: That's a great generalisation, but like anything Smallest in to science, the, yeah. the standard that? error is kind of huge with that. So yeah. a lot of them are fingernail size. So your little pinky finger, mm-hmm. fingernail size would be a lot that you're seeing, and then... In the sea slug sensors coming up, I thought I'd better do some research into them. And the largest ones aren't found in Australia, unfortunately, they're found in California and they can be just under a meter long and weigh 14 kilograms. It's <laughs> a so, hullabaloo bar. So, yeah, there's quite a bit of variability there, but generally, yeah, finger sizes sort of most of them, most of them that are seen. There's
1: yeah. got to be a movie in that, like Attack of the Mutant Nudie where they Anyway, maybe
4: not. If they could be turbocharged, for sure. Yeah. They don't move very fast. They're no, pretty easy to get true. away from They're the slower zombie worms going around or slugs.
0: And they have these beautiful... <laughs> Gills, which which emerge from the like the the, the middle of their dorsal side, so in the middle of their back, don't they? That's where, that's where they breathe.
4: Yeah, they do. It's sort of basically like your lungs inverted and flicked on your back. And that's, what, new, that's, that's what that's what new brain like. means,
1: isn't it? It's naked gill.
4: It is. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the gills
1: aren't covered up; they're actually
4: exposed. Yeah. But they have that ability to retract them in. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hmm. They're pretty super cool. Um, and there's been some really interesting um, research done in as well in terms of how um, some fish that predate on nudibranchs, because the thing that protects the nudibranchs is that they produce all these incredible chemicals that, that tell um, fish to stay away. The ones that manage to eat them end up um, what's called sequestering this, these particular um, metabolites into their own system and can protect themselves. Have you read much about that? The
4: fish themselves yeah. do. Yeah. So the nudibranchs steal it from something and then the fish steal it from the nudibranchs. Yeah. And so it just keeps on going That's through the it. chain. That's fantastic. Yeah. No, I am actually heard of that. I know the nudies are capable of doing it. I've I've heard of, I've read
1: studies like a long time ago where fish, some fish can do that too. So did you just say that they actually get the toxins that they give off to others from somewhere else? They don't actually produce them themselves?
4: No. So they're able to, nudies are fantastic. They're able to steal a lot of stuff. So they can steal um, chloroplasts from plants. So they'll basically suck the sap out of plants, put that to the external of the skin and basically have solar panels and then they'll steal that energy themselves. But they can also, so an, anem- an enemy or a jellyfish, they can basically eat it without triggering off the stinging cells and it passes through the body, put it out on the external side and use that as a weapon themselves. Mm. So, yeah, they're very well adapted. Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and as you were saying before with algae, algae, some algae produce these metabolites which protect them from being eaten but the nudibranchs have uh, their own protective mechanisms against being impacted by that. So they, they take these toxic metabolites and sequester them into their own bodies and protect them from being eaten by some fish. But I, I'm sure I've read a study where some fish are then able to kick it up a notch and, and take that to the next level uh, as well. It,
4: it wouldn't surprise me. The thing is with the nudis, what we know, we only know from a handful of species, there's thought to be like over 4,000 in the world, about 400 or so in Victoria. Yeah. And the information that we're talking about now is based on a handful of them. Mm. So what all these other species are doing, we've got no idea. No, and that's, that's what right. we're
0: starting to sort of unravel. And anecdotally, anecdotally at least, Kate, we're, we're seeing increased numbers of nudibranchs in the south around Victoria, aren't we? There,
4: it is definitely anecdotal at the moment, but, yeah, with climate change, it is something that basically nudibranchs can be a very good indicator for because they have very short life cycles and they can move quite rapidly. And with the sea slug census, they've found something like... 130, 120 species that have extended their range just from doing the sea slug census. Extending their range south. Extending their range further south. But I guess in the case of particularly Melbourne, it's probably more extending across from the west. So um, Wilson's Prom acts as a bit of a barrier in um, Victoria. So anything coming from the east will sort of hit Wilson's Prom and then it heads down to Tasmania. Anything that's coming across from the west, same sort of thing. So any species that are extending their range are more likely to naturally come from the west. But that's not to say things don't move, whether it's in ballast water, shipping boats, and all the rest of it as well. And
0: I guess we're also getting a more, a, a lot more citizen scientists, for want of a better word, but people who are in the water who are deeply interested in biology and what's happening there, um, looking for things like this. Mm. And this is what this sort
4: of sparks that interest or maintains that interest. I had people like running the Great Victorian Fish Count and quite a few citizen science events and I thought, oh, I've got to know quite a few people that are heavily involved. Running the seaside census has introduced me to a whole new group of people and it's fantastic. They're all so passionate, they've got cameras out there and they're making more observations than most scientists, scientists get a chance to do and often that's because they've got more time, they're not sitting in a lab... Uh, writing up their next
0: paper or applying for their next grant. And you mentioned cameras. It is so much easier for people to get into the water now and take photographs. I remember when I was doing, actively diving back in the 1980s, it was like, you know, it was a really complicated thing. You had to have housing around. You know, We had these beautiful Nikon cameras, but you did housing around them. It was not an easy thing, whereas now, you know, you've got mobile phones that are... Can, do it underwater for you. That's right. And that's it. And it's a great um,
4: way to actually involve the science with the citizens is because from a photo you can often tell what a species is and nudibranchs are one of those fortunate species where a photo can give you enough information to identify it.
0: And they are so very, very beautiful.
1: They are. Hey, thanks, Kate. Pleasure. Would you like to stick around? Always, yeah. Excellent. Um, I've got a uh, we're going to, and in. we'll catch up with you once you've had a chance to actually really have a look at all of the data that you've um, got in.
4: Yeah, that'd be great. Once I get the report, I want to sort of let people know about it so they can access and see some of these pictures of the beautiful nudies we've got in Victoria. Yeah.
1: Hey, opportunity for you to thank the people who've been getting all this information for you because I'm guessing quite a few of them are probably listening right now.
4: Uh, they've done an amazing job and there were people that spent about 12 to 14 hours in the water <gasps> over wow. the weekend just looking for nudie ranks. It was phenomenal and a lot of people also ventured into new areas so a lot of people dive but a lot of the nudies are found intertidally so... We actually, you'd come across a few people just sort of rock pool rambling, how much fun is this? I haven't done this since I was a little kid. So yeah. people really got into the search. It was quite a treasure hunt. And look, the plan is to have another one again in October and then we'll bring it back again next year around the same time. The advice was to have it a bit earlier. I think the um, spider crabs that PT's talking about tend to trample sites. Um, there's anecdotal evidence around them eating nudibranchs, but I'm not, sure about that. But um, yeah, I think so. We might have it a bit earlier in the year to try and avoid that migration of spider crabs and increase the
0: diversity and make it a bit easier for the um, people just getting into it to find some. Awesome. I have one last question before you go. You mentioned somebody... not going. But somebody even dived off the Canberra. Where is the Canberra, wreck? It's off uh, Ocean Grove, Colandina,
4: down that towards Bowen Heads. So it's in about 30 metres out there. So... Look, nudibranchs are everywhere. They're you know, intertidal to the Antarctic, so yeah, you'll find them.
1: Excellent. Hey, quick announcement and then a track and then we're going to be joined in studio by uh, Andrew Hazelwinkle. I'll talk about that in just a sec. Uh, This is an announcement very exciting and very happy birthday to Bite Into It. They're turning 25. They're our older siblings here by five years here on Triple R. So live on location from Melbourne Knowledge Week. This is taking place Wednesday May the 9th from 7 till 8pm. So Wednesday week to celebrate the 25th anniversary of our weekly computer and technology show Bite Into It. The program will be live from the Melbourne knowledge week hub at the meat market in north melbourne you can go and hang out with hosts uh, vanessa taholka and warren davies as they share news reviews and interviews on all things tech so wednesday 9th of may from seven till eight it's free you can just rock up come down or tune in and as mentioned this is part of melbourne knowledge week which runs from the 7th till the 13th of may proudly presented by the city of melbourne for more information you can check out mkw.melbourne.vic.gov.au We're going to hear some music now and then be joined in studio by artist Andrew Hazelwinkle who's going to be talking about his upcoming exhibition In, On or Under the Sea. I had the great pleasure of seeing Hungry Ghosts support the Black Eyed Susans at Melbourne Recital Centre about a week ago, and I was blown away by their performance. It was uh, it was just magic. I wanted to play this track, which they actually performed on the night. It's from their album from back in 1999. Alone, alone. This track is called. I don't think about you anymore, but I don't think about you any less. <laughs>
0: Estamos escuchando Radio Marinara in 3 triple R.
1: Indeed, you are. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, we are. <laughs> it's 20 minutes to 10, and you are listening to Radio Marinara right here today with uh, Dr. Beach and Bron, and we've got Kate Mills still in studio with us. Excellent.
0: And they are doing the panel.
1: Yep, panel meeting, and Kent in the green room. We're all here. The gang. The gang, the crew. <laughs> Now, on the 21st of May, 1892, 15 men from Mornington drowned whilst returning from playing a game of football against the township of Mordialik, Morty a township as it was known then, and only four bodies were ever recovered. 126 years later, the event's still regarded as one of the worst sailing disasters in Victoria's history, and it remains the greatest tragedy in Australian football history. Andrew Haswinkle is a leading and contemporary artist who grew up in Mornington and spent his youth swimming in and sailing on the same waters that took the lives of the young football Callers. The tragedy has inspired Andrew to create the upcoming exhibition "What the Sea Never Told." He joins us now to tell us more. Good morning, Andrew, and welcome to Triple R.
3: Good morning. It's nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Oh, thanks so much. Have you come up from Warnington today? No,
3: no, a, a bit closer, just from St Kilda.
1: Oh, of course, not so far. Um, now, I mentioned briefly what happened. Can you tell us more about this tragedy?
3: Um, certainly. I, I guess a good place to start is is with the title of the of the exhibition that I've. Um, use the tragedy as a starting point for um, What the Sea Never Told and this comes from, I've taken it from a a book written by a young woman called Alice Caldwell and her book was called um, Love's Tribute or What the Sea Never Told and she wrote this book um, because she lost three of her brothers in in this disaster and I think this starts to frame our thinking about what it must have been like in 1892. The township itself was was tiny, like it was fledgling, um, and the football club had been formed just four years earlier. And traditionally, they would have travelled by um, buggy or a train. There was a train line running between Mordialloc and and Mornington, um, but the, a local fisherman who was quite keen to try out some new regatta sails he'd he'd bought. Um, offered to sail them up. So it it was interesting. It's a very small town at this point. It's a very small, close community. Um, The the footy team is a a young footy team and uh, they set off at about one o'clock in the afternoon to sail up to Mordialik. It's only a 11.5 nautical mile sail. The conditions were really fine. They played the game. The game was a draw, funnily enough. And they set sail back from Mordialic Creek at about 6 o'clock in the evening for what should have been about a two-hour sail. But um, reports from other skippers sailing the bay that and working the bay that night kind of revealed that there were quite a lot of squalls rolling through. The weather was quite unpredictable and changeable. The boat that they were sailing in called Process um, met with tragedy somewhere. Uh, and um, they had a rigging failure. The boat went down, and they all drowned.
0: F- football season, so presumably winter. Andrew, so it would have been dark on the way back if they left Mordialloc at six.
3: Dark and cold. Dark yeah. and cold. Yeah.
0: yeah. God, I'm, I'm getting a chill just thinking of this story, and and for somebody to have lost three brothers in this in this same terrible tragedy, and in,
3: in the whole town. Well, I think I think what that kind of starts to describe is that. Um, Nobody in the town would have not been affected by the loss of somebody. I mean, brothers, uncles, cousins, lovers, husbands, mates. I mean, uh, everybody. The the town was decimated.
1: And so, um, it was in May, wasn't it? It Was in late May. So we're talking. Yeah, it's yeah, coming up. yeah. Uh, and and we know how changeable the weather can be. And we've only had a you know, there've been a couple of days just in the last week or so where the weather has suddenly turned from being really, really, you know, very calm. What I think a lot of people think of it as classic um, Melbourne autumn conditions too, yeah. and then the big southerly comes through.
3: Yeah, I mean it's it's right. These um, the the kind of autumnal weather is kind of can give us this idea of an extended Indian summer, and then you get. Certainly for Mornington, the, the weather that's um, most damaging for the harbor uh, um north-westerlies, west-north-westerlies, and when they come through, they kind of catch us by surprise. Mm. Just two weeks ago, you're right, there were boats washed ashore uh, on Shirehall Beach in Mornington.
1: Yeah, that's right.
3: Was, was the wreck ever found? Uh, yes. yes, yeah, she was. Process was found. Um, she uh, founded off a small reef called... Uh, Woolly Reef, just off Davies Bay in Mount Eliza. Um, She was three-quarters submerged. Just a bar was poking out of the water.
1: I'm pretty sure Rex has spoken about this. So we have a maritime archaeology um, expert who comes in periodically on our program. I'm, I'm, I'm sure he's referred to this incident. Don't know if he's actually spoken about the process specifically, though.
0: Right. And, Andrew, you said that only four bodies
3: were recovered, so four bodies were washed up, and there were
1: how many again
0: lost? 17, 19?
3: 15, Fifteen. 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 The youngest was a 14-year-old um, boy. He was the son of the skipper, who was the eldest uh, skipper and owner of the boat, Charlie Hooper, and he was 36, so that was kind of the age there. And um, one body was found under the gunwale of the boat uh, and the others washed ashore over the subsequent two weeks, um, two in the vicinity between Mornington and Mount Eliza and the uh, another one um, in Sorrento, uh, not as far down in Sorrento Dramana.
1: Let's go to your exhibition now. Uh, It's described as a deeply personal meditation on the loss of the young men's lives and more broadly the ongoing complex nuanced relationships between the sea and the communities whose lives are woven into it. I wanted to ask you how about you went about preparing for this, taking in the enormity of so many lives lost. How did you go about that?
3: Um, Well uh, perhaps the best way for me to answer that is to kind of pick up on something that you, you mentioned in the intro um, and that was about me swimming in the same seas as mm. the, the the water that had t- taken the lives of these guys. And because I grew up in Mornington and um, spent my boyhood there and my adolescence and my early manhood, and in this time I was swimming at the same beaches and in the same creeks and... Um, I was also exploring the same scrubby uh, cliff paths that were around then and still are now and cl- to some extent climbing some of the same trees and snorkeling on the same reef. So I, I kind of felt a, a, um, a, 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 a quite a personal relationship uh, to the guys that lost their lives because I'd had similar boyhood experiences across the distance of 126 years, obviously, but, but um, so there were great differences, but I felt quite close to them um, and then in terms of preparing for it I, I, I kind of what's the best thing for me to say here I, I guess I, I didn't prepare for it emotionally at all mm. um, the preparation was more in a kind of pragmatic way of making sure I had all the information through hours of research and things like that and then as because I've been working on it for a number of years I've been working on the project for about three years Um as I kind of explored more and more information. I became more and more deeply, personally involved in the story, in an un, totally unprepared way. Mm. So it is times it was quite um, just upsetting. Andrew, can you describe the exhibition
0: for us? Is it, do you look? At, do you go into details about particular families? For example, the,
3: the family where three boys were lost, or do you look at it as a whole? Or um, I took a decision really early on in the in the project that I wouldn't um, try to describe the story in any way, and a very um, matter-of-fact decision that I would, although although the story has a historiographic um, inception, that the works should in no way, the contemporary works should in no way have any association with a sense of nostalgia. Um, I also took the decision that there would be no boats and there would be no bodies in any of the uh, in any of the works, so. The exhibition doesn't try to tell the story um, in a literal sense. It tries to um, unfold the story across three bodies of work, and the three bodies of work are a collection of large format cibachrome photographs of the surface of the sea. Um, then there is a there's a very large uh, multi-screen projection video work. Um, which is filmed kind of at, below and above the surface of the water at different places around um, Port Phillip Bay and also out in the Bass Strait. Um, and then the third component of the exhibition or the project more broadly is, is a publication that I've been working on for some time. And in that publication, what I really explore is the community response to the disaster Um, and this was something that to to this point has not had a lot of attention paid to it in relation to the tragedy. Um, Certain other aspects have had certain other works done on it, but it was the way what struck me as I continued to delve further into the historical research through um, digitised newspapers on Trove, uh, what I discovered was this incredibly broad response from football clubs as uh, far away as Broken Hill, to to gymnastics associations, to circuses, to the Fish Salesman Association, who were all um, doing different things like impromptu brass bands, having impromptu concerts on bayside beaches. And, In memoriam for the... Uh, to, gather, to gather funds for the... Um, for the relief fund for the people who had lost the men in their lives, who were most at risk socially as a result of of the disaster. So there was this fund and um, all sorts of football clubs and other sporting clubs performed benefit matches in support of the community.
4: I just wanted to ask, we were chatting in the green room earlier, there's still community connections to the people that were lost in this tragedy around in Mornington now, aren't there?
3: Yeah, there are. There are um, direct relatives still living in and around Mornington of some of the young men who lost their lives, certainly. And and I've had conversations with some of them and um, some of them have been very generous in terms of providing uh, family uh, documents and that's been part of the ongoing research. But again, because I don't present any of the that kind of material in the exhibition, that the information that they've generously supplied is kind of deeply embedded in my understanding and interpretation of it rather than the literal representation of the disaster.
1: Now, I understand the publication will be launched on the 21st of May, and this is the actual anniversary of the disaster.
3: Yeah, so yeah. So be
1: 126 years.
3: Exactly, mm. exactly.
1: And it's going to be... Uh, would you like to talk about it? I've got the information in front of me.
3: Um, I, can, I can mention just a couple of things about it, which I think are um, interesting. I mean... We decide, It's a Monday night and normally uh, a gallery wouldn't host a public program event on a Monday night. It's not a night that you get a lot of people to come to but I said I really wanted to do it on the on the anniversary of the event and I wanted to do it at the time that so that we will start talking at the time that Process and the 15 guys aboard sailed out of the Morty Creek for Mornington. So that starts at 5.30 for a... Arrive at 5:30 for a drink, and then we start talking at about six. And we'll talk through the time that um, they were sailing, and that at that, at during which they they met the tragedy. Yeah.
1: So this is Spooky. at yeah, Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery. Yes, that's right. And it'll be at an in conversation event um, between yourself, uh, Andrew Haswinkle, master seaman and wooden boat expert Tim Phillips, and the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery senior curator Danny Lacey. People need to book for that one.
3: Um, it's a good idea, yeah, yeah? definitely. Uh,
1: so, your exhibition, um, just mentioning again for listeners who've maybe tuned in since um, we began, uh, What the Sea Never Told, it's an exhibition on at the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery um, addresses Civic Reserve, Duns Road, Mornington. And when does it kick off?
3: Uh, next Saturday. Great. 4 till 6. Come
1: along, please. And it'll be running until July? That's right, July 8th. Excellent. Um, so exhibition admission fees, uh, a, a huge sum of $4 for adults and $2 for concessions. And the gallery hours are Tuesday till Sunday, 10am until 5pm. For more information, uh, you have your own website, don't you? Yeah, that's right. You give that one a plug.
3: Um, sure. It's just andrewhazewinkle.com.
1: Great. you. You can also go to MPRG, which is Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery .mournpen.vic.gov.au. We'll put both of those links on our Facebook page. Thanks so much for joining us, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me. All the very best for your exhibition. Cheers. Thank been you. I've been speaking with Andrew hayes What the Sea Never Told.
0: Hi, I'm David Suzuki, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3 rr 102.7 FM. Indeed you are, are, are. <laughs> My nice. name's Dr Beach, and I'm joined in the studio by Bron Burton and by Cade Mills, and we have Nerida on the panel. Um, I Just just in a couple of minutes, we talk a lot about plastics On this program as indeed we probably should indeed we should there's no probably about it and I'm a little bit excited about a report which has come out in the weekly called science and this is reporting on well it's a paper which has been published by a group called Zoo et al Zoo is the first author and they are from um, a university in Colorado at Fort Collins they are they have worked on plastics and they're trying to address the problem of plastic recycling in the last 40 years, we have had recycling symbols on plastics and plastics we can think of being, well, we have recycling symbols on plastics, but only about 10% of those are recycled. And to recycle those plastics, it requires a certain amount of energy, often which kind of outweighs the benefit of using of reusing those plastics. We know there's a huge problem with plastics being biodegradable. We need to have particular bacteria present for those plastics to be biodegradable. Often they are not and therefore the plastics break down. We're using more and more plastics. We have become dependent upon plastics. So what we really need if we are to continue this road of using plastics is to have plastics that we can truly recycle. In other words, that they will have an infinite life cycle. So we can use the product, we can then break it down without using very little energy and then reassemble it into the long-chain polymers, which is what plastics are, so it's a whole lot of molecules stuck together. And when we break it down, we... We'll break it down into the monomers. We need to then put it back into the polymers easily and quickly. They have, been, this, These group, um, Zhu et al, have been able to take um, plastics that we're using now and tweak the molecules a little bit so they've got kind of rings on them. If you look at the molecular structure and they've added a couple of rings here, a couple of rings there. There is a lot more work to do on this, but what they have showed in this preliminary paper, well, it's, they've done quite a lot of work. It's a paper published in Science, so it's... it's got a lot of kudos, Um, they've been able to show that they can now produce a plastic, at least in the laboratory, which will be broken down relatively easily and then reassembled pretty easily again, just um, using pretty benign conditions back into something which is reusable. The plastic which they are now remaking, if you like, from this is a little bit brittle. They need to tweak it so that it becomes a little bit less brittle and is going to be more useful. Um, but it's certainly gone a long way to improving the, um, the kinds of recycling that we can do with plastics at the moment. As I've, I do want to stress that this is not going to be on the supermarket shelves. Or in any kind of product that we're using in the next couple of years, but it's it's very exciting work.
1: Did you see the figure that was put out? Uh, it was published this week. About 150 odd million dollars is what it's estimated that it will take to make Australia fully self-sufficient in its own recycling.
0: Uh, no, I didn't. But 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 to me that doesn't seem like much.
1: Doesn't sound like much, does it? Yeah. No.
0: And it, yeah, you know, it's all over the news. We we have this huge problem with China not unreasonably saying no, we don't want your stuff. You know, yeah. We've got to deal with it ourselves.
1: That's right. 150 million.
0: 150 million. <laughs>
1: Proverbial drop in the ocean. I'll, yep. I'll get some more details on that, but I'm, I'm, I was equally as surprised when I saw those figures this week. Thanks, Dr Beach. Uh,
0: that's a pleasure. It was quick, but I hope I got
1: that message across. The story will continue. This has
3: been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio.